Welcome to What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East Edition. This podcast is a production of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides PD for K-12 teachers in global learning. Learn more about Primary Source by visiting www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. This episode was made possible through generous support from Qatar Foundation International, another nonprofit that inspires meaningful connections to the Arab world by creating a global community of diverse learners and educators. Learn more about QFI at www.qfi.org. Ask anyone who's traveled in the Middle East to tell you about their experiences there, and odds are the conversation will eventually turn to the souks or marketplaces. Souks are the unofficial heart of most Middle Eastern cities, and it's where you can find pretty much anything you need, from fresh fruits and vegetables, to meats and spices, to dry goods and staples. And yet, despite their significance and the fact that they're pretty much everywhere in the region, these marketplaces rarely appear in serious conversations about the Middle East. Well, in this episode, we're going to try to change that by showing you why souks are so important and how we can use them to get your students to think about the intersection of food, economics, and culture. This is episode 13, Into the Souk. You know, we all have to eat. We are all familiar with the eating experience, but the more you know about uh, the way other peoples eat their food, you know about them through their food. I think it's a delicious way to know about people. We'd like you to meet Nawal Nasrallah, an independent scholar who specializes in the study of food in the Middle East. She's a native of Iraq, and she's devoted her professional life to exploring and writing about the culinary history and traditions of the region, which is why we asked her to sit down with us. It's important to have an idea of what the souks in a given country is, because the souk is like a barometer of the society itself. I mean, if it is well-stocked, if it is bustling with life, bustling with shoppers, it means that there is a stability in the area and there is prosperity. But if it is the opposite of this, then it tells you that the you know, society is in trouble, there is something wrong. So the souks are a kind of mirror to the society. That's why it would be really useful to know about them, how they are conducted, and uh, it's like a microcosm of the society itself. We'll talk more in a little bit about why souks are so important to understanding the Middle East. But first, let's make sure we're all on the same page as to what a souk exactly is. Generally, souk is um, a place, it's a marketplace, it's a kind of venue for exchange of benefits between sellers and buyers. And when we are talking about souks today, of course, we, uh, we need to have in mind the traditional souks because the souk in Arabic is a general word for any market. You know, like you say market in English, this is souk. But when we talk about it today, we are referring to traditional souks which is like the, what they call, other, another name for it, is bazaar. Souq is an Arabic word, and etymologically it goes back to ancient Akkadian times. It's the language of ancient uh, Iraqis, and it must have been adopted in Aramaic, and then from Aramaic to Hebrew and Arabic. In Arabic it is souq, in Hebrew it is shuk. But bazaar is a, a Persian word. But both of them refer to the same traditional souks we are familiar and now today in the entire Middle Eastern world. Wherever you go, you encounter such uh, traditional bazaars in the city centers. 
Another key point to consider is that most of the souks are old, like really old. Of course, coming from Iraq, the first one that comes to mind is Souq al-Shurja, which is the spice market. There is the Souq al-Bazazin, where cloth, you know, fabrics is sold. In Tehran, there is a marvelous uh, bazaar, which extends about five miles or something, and you can spend hours there going from one sort of merchandise to the other, and you can uh, go forever throughout those uh, streets. There is one in Istanbul. There is the spice bazaar in Istanbul. And there is the other one where you can get all the ceramics and, uh, you know, non-edible things. And there is also the souk in uh, Marrakesh, you know, in Morocco, where also, you know, you can get the same uh, kind of merchandise. And by the way, most of those souks that you visit in city centers, they go back to medieval times. Some of the ones in Istanbul were built with the Ottoman period after the 16th century, but most of them, they were built even earlier. It's also important to remember that shopping in a Middle Eastern souk isn't exactly like shopping at the supermarket back home. A shopping experience in bazaars or souks is definitely different from any supermarket where it is a combination of all kinds of markets. You can buy meat, groceries, dry goods, fruits, vegetables. This is not the case with the traditional souks in the Middle East. Uh, they are kind of specialized if you want to do your, uh, if you want to go shopping in the Middle East, uh, prepare to go to several places in order to have your uh, shopping complete. You go to the vegetable market, the fruit market. You go to the uh, grocer where you buy uh, dry goods like rice, sugar, tea, and all these things. And uh, of course, we have to cook with the spices. So you have to go to the, you know, some beautiful uh, bazaars and souks where you find all kinds of uh, spices and herbs and uh, like soap and uh, candles and all these uh, goodies. So uh, the souk is it definitely refers to a specialized place. If you go to the spice market, for example, all of them, I mean, whether you go to Istanbul, to Iran, to Morocco, or wherever you go, they'll be like, you know, long streets, labyrinths, some of them, and they are narrow. They are all covered to protect uh, the shoppers and to protect also the goods. And uh, on both sides, you see small shops. And uh, more or less, you find that they sell the same uh, merchandise. And of course, people have their own favorite merchants to go to, or, you know, they go for quality. So usually we go to the market and we start from the beginning to the very end. We walk and uh, we see things and we choose and we buy. And because the souk is made up of many small shops all competing with each other, Everything is designed to grab your attention. You cannot go to a shop and enter the shop, choose your things and pay for it and leave. The seller has to do these things for you. You point to a thing, you say, I want this, I want that amount, and he does all these things for you. So this kind of barrier between shoppers and sellers, but yeah, they have to, to you know, get around it. I mean, you have to attract people to get to your place. And for this, they resorted to display. I mean, if you go to the bazaars or to those spice markets, they are beautifully displayed, different colors. It's, it's really a very uh, beautiful experience to go there and, and buy the, you know, the things you need. They are so noisy, you know, because sellers, they try to attract your attention. So, you know, they talk and advertise their merchandise. 
And in addition to those uh, shops, of course, you find uh, hawkers, you know, selling things from baskets, from crates, and they also have to attract your attention. Everybody is attracting your attention. That's because of the nature of this specialized uh, market. You know, they are selling the same merchandise, so they have to, of course, attract people. And then, of course, there's the bargaining, well, at least sometimes. If you go to the Middle East, there are places, like when you go in Morocco, you have to bargain, or in Turkey. Anybody who went there who knows the, this, I mean, you don't pay the, the first price they give you. You have to bargain, and it's like a game. Some people enjoy it, and it scares some people. Nowadays, of course, most of them, they just, uh, I mean, in Iraq, they, they stopped this. Back in the 70s, 60s, people used to bargain for everything. You go buy like a kilo of tomatoes, you have to bargain for it. But then they stopped doing these things, so uh, it's all, you know, prices are fixed. Now, even though you can find pretty much anything you need in the souks, it's the spice markets that are arguably the most famous, at least to outsiders. Merchants work hard to arrange their spices in beautiful displays, but it's the aromas that work the best magic. All kinds of spices you can think of. Cloves, cinnamon with two kinds, like Ceylon cinnamon and cassia. I mean, some people don't realize that there are two kinds of cinnamon. Of course, cardamom is very important because it's used in savory and uh, sweet dishes. There is rose water, allspice. Of course, we before allspice, we they had something called kubeb, which is similar to allspice. But when the new word uh, products, you know, when they became popular, allspice replaced the kubeb they used. They 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 more or less, uh, you know, have the same aroma. But here's the rub, if you'll pardon the pun. Most of the spices you find in the souks aren't originally from the Middle East. How those spices got there tells us a lot about the region's importance as a nexus of global trade, going all the way back to ancient times. These spices don't grow in the Middle East. Herbs grow, like you use cilantro, uh, like dill or something. All those herbs, they grow. But those spices, these are trees that grow only in Asia, you know, mostly India, China, and Indonesia. So uh, traders used to uh, bring all these things. And at a time, this trade was dominated by the Arabs. They were involved in trade because of their geographical location. The Arabian Peninsula, all around there were important ports. These were all Arab ports. And when the trade came from India, of course, they were the ones to receive those and then distribute them to other places. From, uh, for example, Yemen, uh, ships either would go through the Red Sea or by land. Uh, they go up to uh, Medina, Hejaz, and they go up to the Levant or Egypt and then up to Alexandria. And there you have the Mediterranean. From the Mediterranean, of course, the spices would go to Europe. Um, so this tells you that, you know, the, the trade was, uh, was really active even from, uh, you know, ancient times. Believe it or not, you've probably heard a story about these ancient trade routes, maybe when you were a kid. It's the story of Sinbad the Sailor. Sinbad the Sailor, he's, a, he's an adventurous guy. He was a young man from Baghdad, and he wanted to see the world. You know, there's always, they tell you the story in the Arabian Nights. There was an urge, burning urge in him to go out and see the world, you know. So uh, the way to go is, of course, by trading. He bought some merchandise, and from Baghdad, he traveled to Basra. And Basra being open to the Gulf, of course, it was a very important trading center. 
he went to Basra and he took a boat and this boat of course uh, took him to India to other places and every time of course there's a catastrophe and then he would be saved and he goes back to Baghdad he would swear that he would never do it again but he does it again he did it seven times so in his seven voyages you know you learn a lot about what happened during his time you know in the outside world of course it's fictional but I think it's based of course on uh, you know, certain incidents that happened and they uh, wove those stories around them. Okay, so if it's merchants like Sinbad of old who are the ones bringing goods to the souks in the Middle East, who are the people who sell these goods? And for that matter, who's doing the buying? As far as sellers are concerned, it's mostly male-dominated. For example, I have never seen a woman seller in the spice market. But sometimes if you go to the vegetable market or if you go to the, uh, you know, where you buy dairy, you find women, they are mostly villagers. They make, for example, like uh, their dairy products, they make them and they bring them in the morning, you know, from around the, the area and they come and sell them themselves. But, you know, such women... They could either be, you know, like widows or something. They have to uh, support their own families. But mostly it is male-dominated. As for shoppers, anybody can go there. You know, you can find, uh, you know, traditional women wearing those head covers or, you know, just, uh, you know, like wearing European clothes, men, old, young, and women would take their kids with them and go and do the shopping. So it's really bustling with all kinds of people from all the uh, you know, social stratus. At the same time, while everyone may go to the market, factors like gender and class can affect who typically does what. As far as shopping for vegetables and uh, fruits, for example, it would be mostly women because they have to do it on a daily basis. I mean, before refrigeration, they had to go to buy meat, they buy uh, vegetables and the fruits on a daily basis. And of course, men go to work. That's I'm talking about like a social uh, working class. He goes to work early in the morning and she stays at home to take care of the family and uh, prepare the meal. So they would carry, you know, their uh, <laughs> their baskets on their heads, you know, filled with all these uh, groceries and they will, uh, you know, go back home. But women of class, they would go, but not on daily basis, for example. But women of class, they would have their own maids, they would have their own uh, porters to carry things for them. So you find different kind of people and different age groups. We're going to talk teaching tips in a minute, but before we do that, there's still one more thing we need to do after having visited the souk, and that's eating all the delicious things we bought. When we talk about Middle Eastern food, people might think that we all cook the same things or we all focus on the same things, but this is not true. For example, in Morocco, you have the tagine or the couscous, and in the Levant, you have the bulgur dishes and so But in Iraq, our staples are timman umarga, which is rice and stew. We have rice and stew practically every day. It might sound boring, but it's not really, it's not so, because every day the lady of the house would use a different vegetable, a different cut of meat, and so it's an infinite variety of dishes just based on uh, rice and stew. The most popular stew is, of course, okra. It's not a demanding uh, dish, so it's, you know, the, the items are limited. 
but uh, it's it's really uh, it's I mean we love it. It's it's a popular dish. In order to make okra stew and rice, I have to go to the vegetable market to buy the okra, tomatoes and garlic if I don't have it at home. And then I have to go to the grocer uh, because I need rice, I need oil, I need tomato paste, and of course I need uh, meat. So I have to go to the butcher who are usually at the end of the vegetable market. So I go home. I need to cut off both ends of the okra. And the problem with okra is this kind of uh, sticky substance inside. People just wash it, but I parboil it and uh, use it. I fry the garlic, whole garlic cloves, and then I add the tomato paste. I, I need to caramelize it a little bit. It gives it a nice smell. And then add uh, some tomato juice, add the, the okra, and I should have cooked the meat separately, you know, just boil it and let it simmer until it's really tender and then add it to the dish and put some lemon juice and salt. That's it. I don't use any spices for this one. It doesn't need it. Just salt, lemon juice, that will be enough. And let it simmer until the sauce thickens and then uh, you eat it. Serve with rice and voila, a souk to table meal from Iraq that you and your students can easily make at home. Before we wrap up, we want to quickly share three strategies for bringing the sook into your classroom to help your kids better see the connections between marketplaces, economies, and societies. For these, we turn to Primary Source Program Director, Daniel Osborne. I love the idea of teaching about the sook because it offers a glimpse into the daily lives and experiences of people. It's personal and intimate in a way that we don't always capture in social studies classrooms. Sometimes the textures and dimensions of people's lived experiences are obscured by our tendency to study geopolitics, broad trends, and to focus on the political leaders and well-known public figures of the region. We can still illuminate all of this in the context of the souk, but this place lends itself to a natural pairing with the granular textures of day-to-day -day life. We can zoom in and out to see macro-societal trends unfolding in the microcosm of the bustling marketplace. Our first strategy is to lean heavily on visual aids, which can help both younger and older students get oriented to the souk and get them to start thinking critically about what goes on there. Photo essays offer students glimpses of daily life in the market. Not only the people and the food and the wares they display, but also the hubbub and energy of this place. It's hard to grasp just how full of life the souk is until you've had the opportunity to be there. A photo is no substitute for travel, but it is a window and it can bring students closer to what they may not totally understand, value, or even yet appreciate. Working with photos is an opportunity to develop students' skills at visual analysis. Consider the basic questions to ask when exploring a photo or set of photos with students. Begin by asking, what do you see? What does this make you think? How does this make you feel? What questions does this photo raise? Consider layering questions in a close viewing exercise by having students return to the same images, but with different intentions. Close viewing is a great way to get students moving from literal and descriptive responses 
to more interpretive and critical ones. The questions you pose can draw out students' own connections. They can also draw out prior knowledge and related content already introduced in your classroom. We also suggest focusing on the economics of the marketplace itself. Because markets are all about goods and transactions, we can approach this topic through an economic lens. We can have students think about raw materials, supplies, and products. This can be a launching pad into conversations and exercises that get students thinking about ideas like abundance, scarcity, or supply and demand. We can pose questions like, where do the spices, textiles, grains, and multitude of other products originate? Who cultivated or manufactured them? How far do they have to travel to get to the souk? What are staples and what are luxury items? And what does this all mean for their cost? Finally, we recommend using travel writing, both from the past and from the present. Travel logs are another way to tap into and travel vicariously through those who have been able to encounter, observe, and record their experiences of going into these markets throughout the Middle East. In Arabic, the genre of travel writing is referred to as rehla, the word meaning trip or voyage. And there's no short supply of travel writing authored by Arabs and Muslims that describe their voyages across Al-Andalus, North Africa, the Middle East, and beyond. For instance, we would be remiss not to introduce the 14th century Moroccan traveler Ibn Battuta. Here's an excerpt from his time in Constantinople. Its bazaars and streets are spacious and paved with flagstones. Each bazaar has gates which are closed upon in the night, and the majority of the artisans and sellers in them are women. Here we have an opportunity to have students explore continuity and change, another theme in the social studies and another aspect of historical thinking. Thinking about the shifting political tides Constantinople would undergo, this short primary source can lead into a lesson where students consider the fluidity of culture, tradition, identity, and gender roles across time. It's important for students to consider the fact that places are not static, and the contrast between Ibn Battuta's description of Constantinople with its contemporary religious, cultural, and political identities can be a starting point for helping students trace continuity and change within the microcosm of a single city or a single marketplace. Understanding the significance of the Sukh is essential for understanding the Middle East, whether you're studying the past or the present day. It's the Sukh where people of all ages and classes and genders rub shoulders to acquire the necessities of everyday living. And therefore, it can tell us a lot about culture and society and the economy. Framing an exploration of the region around something like a marketplace can also help you push back against that narrative that conflict should be the primary theme in the study of the Middle East. Thanks for joining us, and talk more next time on What Teachers Need to Know, the Middle East. To learn more about this podcast, our sponsors, and for free online resources to help you teach about the Sukh, visit www.primarysource.org podcasts. And if you love this podcast as much as we do, let us know by reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. More reviews means more new listeners, which ultimately means more great episodes for you.